Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Here we are at the end of July, coming into the dog days of summer. Dog days of summer. I don't even know what that means. And uh, it means August. It means finding God in the music. Woo! Season 15 next Sunday. Starts next Sunday. For five Sundays. Um, got my tracks all lined out. We might, we might rock a little bit a few Sundays. <laughs> See, I know I got something. I know. I'm looking forward to it, but that's, that's not what we're about today because today is Ruth, a subversive romance. Episode four, the finale, Obed. We start with a flashback. Moab, the land of Moab on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, the land of the Moabites. Now, the Israelites and the Moabites were enemies. Israel had enemies. But they had a particularly bitter relationship with the Moabites. They were a particularly despised enemy. Goes all the way back to King Balak and Balaam and cursing and all of this. It's, it's a long story. And so then it gets worked into the Torah and Deuteronomy 23, 3, that no Moabite could belong to the congregation of Israel. No Moabite. No, no Moabites. And in fact, it was so stringent that a Moabite was determined if you had a single ancestor over the last 10 generations. If you had a single great, 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 great grandparent who was a Moabite, you could not belong to the congregation of Israel. Okay, and then we jump forward a few centuries. It's the year 455 B.C. And Israelites are now returning back to the land of Israel from their captivity, from their exile in Babylon. In the year 455, Ezra, the chief priest, and Nehemiah, the governor, enact a very strict application of Deuteronomy 23.3. You see, what had happened was some of the Israelite men had begun to marry some of the local women, including Moabites, intermarriage. And Ezra and Nehemiah were very much dismayed by this. So they enacted a very aggressive policy that said, no, we're not going to intermarry with Moabites. And furthermore, Israelite men who have married Moabite women must divorce their Moabite wives and send them away along with any children from that marriage. So the book of Ezra ends with just simply a list 
of 117 names of Israelite men who divorced their Moabite wives, sent them away, and with their children. It's at this time that the book of Ruth was written. All right, so now we kind of need to recap a little bit of this story we've been following, this Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus, Amazon Prime story that we've been following. Centers around a woman named Naomi. She's an Israelite from Bethlehem. And she's returning from Moab with her Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth. Because these two women have endured tremendous tragedy, hardship, and loss. In quick succession, there was three deaths. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, he died. And then Naomi's two sons died, Mahon and Kilion. And so Naomi returns to Bethlehem. One daughter-in-law, a Moabite woman, stays, Orpah, she stays in Moab. But Ruth decides to go with her mother-in-law. We say back, well, it's not back for Ruth. Ruth's never been to Bethlehem, never been to Israel. But she sticks with her mother-in-law. When they get back, Ruth begins to, you know, so they can survive because they're impoverished. She begins to glean in the fields. This was, this was a provision made for the poor in ancient Israel that you could not harvest all of your crops. You have to leave some, leave the corners. And if some falls off the wagon, you can't pick it up so that the poor would have access to provision. So Ruth, the younger of these two women, goes forth to glean in the fields around Bethlehem and perchance she ends up in the field of a prominent, middle-aged, wealthy man by the name of Boaz. Ruth, this young widow, catches the eye of Boaz and there begins to be hints of romance. Finally, Naomi, the mother-in-law, decides to press the issue and in kind of a risky, risque move, sends Ruth, all dressed up in her finest, at night to the threshing floor of Boaz where Boaz is winnowing the barley harvest. In the middle of the night, Ruth lays down by Boaz and says, spread your wing over us, meaning be our redeemer, be our kinsman redeemer. He's a relative of Elimelech, the late husband of Naomi, the now deceased father-in-law of Ruth. And he has, if he chooses, the ability to redeem their property, but that involves marrying Ruth. In their midnight conversation at the threshing floor, Boaz pledges to do that, but he says, look, there is a relative that is closer related to your family than I am. So I, I will talk to him about it, but if he, if he declines, if he gives up his right, then, then I will do it. 
And so he goes in the morning and he talks to the man and the man says, he says, you know, you could redeem the inheritance of Elimelech for Naomi and you, you, could, you could keep it in the family that way. Do you want to do that? And he says, yeah, I think I do. And then Boaz says, but that means, you know, you have to marry Ruth the Moabite. And he said, well, no, then I can't do it. So Boaz became their redeemer and married Ruth. That's where we ended last week. That's a recap of all we've been through. And so now we're ready for the finale, episode four, Obed. Ruth, chapter four, verse 13. Then Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When they came together, the Lord granted her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not deprived you this day a redeemer. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be a restorer of life for you and a support for your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons has borne him. Then Naomi took the child placed him in her lap and cared for him. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. The end. That's how the story ends. But there's a lot to look at here. There's a lot for us to analyze in this subversive romance and how it ends. Notice that the romance begins and ends by focusing not on Ruth, but on Naomi. In many ways, this story really is Naomi's story. And it is a beautiful story. Remember in episode one, when Naomi comes back, she's been gone a few years, maybe 10 years, we don't know. And the townswomen who had been her former friends recognize her and they're so thrilled and they're saying, oh, you've come back, Naomi. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Her name means pleasant, Naomi means pleasant, but she says, I'm not, my name is not Naomi. You should call me Mara bitter because the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Well, in times of great pain, don't be too quick to assume that your story has been fully told. We're all going to go through some times of pain. But in times of great pain, don't make that your name. Don't, don't, we're all going to go through some pain, but don't make it your identity. Don't say, I'm no longer Naomi, I'm Mara. I'm, I'm no longer pleasant. I'm bitter. Don't do that. This too shall pass. I mean, Romans 8, 28 is still true. And God is able to make all things work together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. In times of great pain, I know it hurts, but don't be too quick to assume that's the end of your story because it's not. From the time that Naomi and Ruth return, it's about four months. The story we've been telling has been taking place over four months. And then 
Boaz and Ruth marry. She conceives immediately. And now a grandson for Naomi has been born. So it's been like 13 months. Just a little bit over a year has gone by. And now these same townswomen, these friends of Naomi, to whom she said 13 months earlier, just call me Mara, just call me bitter. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. These same women to whom she said that now gather around her and they become a chorus to celebrate the goodness that has come into Naomi's life. And this is their song. Blessed be the Lord who has not deprived you this day of a redeemer and may his name be famous in Israel and may he be a restorer of life for you and a support for your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons has borne him. Seven sons. Seven sons was proverbial in ancient Israel as the perfect family. You know, what would you wish for? If you could, if you could have the perfect family, what would you wish for? You would wish for seven sons. This shows up a couple times in the Bible. But this subverts that, that the perfect family is seven sons because Ruth is a subversive romance. And these townswomen say, no, no, no. Ruth, your daughter-in-law, has been better for you than if you had seven sons. And it's true. Ruth's a good woman. And Ruth has now given Naomi a grandson, a redeemer, a restorer of life, support for old age. Now, yes, we think, you know, Boaz is the one that initially redeems them. But this isn't who the towns, they're not talking about Boaz as the redeemer. They're talking about this grandson. Remember, Boaz is probably closer to the age of Naomi. Let's make up some numbers. Let's say he's 45 and Ruth's maybe 20. He's the older man. And as Naomi gets older, it isn't going to be Boaz who's going to be her support. It's going to be this grandson. It's going to be this grandson who is going to be the redeemer and the restorer of life and support in her old age. So Naomi's friends bless this grandson by saying, may his name be famous in Israel. And what is his name? They named him Obed. Now we've learned that in our subversive romance, all of the names are significant. Elimelech. The father, God is king. His wife, Naomi, pleasant. They have two sons. Their names are foreshadowing. Mahon, sickness. Kilion, destruction. And then there's the two daughters-in-law, Orpah, which means nape, because she's the one that turned back. And Ruth, which means friendship. And now we have this son of Ruth, grandson of Naomi, his name is Obed. What does Obed mean? Obed means servant or worshiper. But it's short for Obadiah. You know, his name's Obadiah, but we'll call him Obed. 
You know how that, how that works. Michael, but we say Mike. Obadiah means servant worshiper of the Lord. And what did this servant worshiper of the Lord, Obed, what did he do? Well, he became the father of Jesse, the father of David. Obed was famous in Israel for one thing, for being the grandfather of King David. Which means if Obed is the grandfather of King David, that means that Ruth the Moabite is the great grandmother of King David. Look out, Ezra Nehemiah. This story is just all of a sudden got some punch to it. A subversive romance indeed. Do you see? Do you see? At the time when they are trying to pressure Israelite men to divorce Moabite wives and send away their children, a story emerges on the scene that identifies a Moabite as the great-grandmother of King David. That's why we call it a subversive romance. Ruth is a counter-narrative subverting some of the assertions of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah seek a rigid enforcement of Deuteronomy 23.3. No Moabite can belong to the congregation of Israel, and we're going to stretch this out for 10 generations. But the book of Ruth informs us that David's great-grandmother, that's only three generations back, was a Moabite. So the book of Ruth asks, hey, are you going to exclude King David from the assembly of Israel? Is that where you want to go with this? Because if you send away Obed, you don't get Jesse, and then you don't get King David. That's the question that the book of Ruth is raising. And so if the question is, are we going to get rid of King David? And our allegiance to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 23.3, well, the answer is, of course not. So we might want to rethink some things, even some biblical things. The books, that the books, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Ruth are all in the Bible, shows us some things about how the Bible actually works. You know, you have lots of Christians. I, 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 I'm a Bible believer. I believe the Bible. I'm a Bible-believing Christian. Great. I'm all for it. So am I. The difference is I actually read it. You know, and I'm just throwing out this empty signifier. I believe the Bible. I actually read it. I read it very closely, very carefully. For decades. Reading Ezra and Nehemiah side by side with the contemporaneous book of Ruth and seeing their contrasting views regarding intermarriage with Moabites highlights the inspired tension of Scripture as opposed to imagined univocality of Scripture. Yeah, I'm going to yell out a parry for that one. It's true. I'm going to give that to you again. 
reading Ezra and Nehemiah side by side with the contemporaneous book of Ruth and seeing their contrasting views regarding intermarriage with Moabites highlights the inspired tension of Scripture as opposed to an imagined univocality. That means one voice of Scripture. The Bible is very often multivocal on certain subjects. The inspiration is in the tension. The inspiration does not eliminate the tension. The inspiration is in the tension because the Bible wants us to grapple with hard questions. Like, for example, the tension between Proverbs and the book of Job. The overarching theme of the book of Proverbs in its 31 chapters is fear God, do what is right, and you will have a blessed, happy life. That's true enough. It's, it's true-ish. There's truth there. But if the theme of the book of Proverbs is fear God, do what's right, you'll have a blessed, happy life. Job says, you know, funny thing, I got a story to tell. I feared God and I did what's right. Man, phew. So there's tension there. We're not saying Proverbs is wrong. We're not saying Job is wrong. We're saying the inspiration is in the tension. Or, for example, the tension that is evident between, let's say, Leviticus and what some of the psalmists and prophets say concerning God's desire for ritual blood sacrifice. In Leviticus, I can show you where, where the scripture says that God requires sacrifice for sin day by day. But then you get to Psalm 40 and the psalmist says, Sacrifice and burnt offering for sin you have not required. You have opened my ears. And then Hosea prophesies in the name of the Lord and says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. There's tension and the inspiration is in the tension. All right. I want to clarify. I am not saying that Ezra and Nehemiah were all wrong. I, I, I'm probably in the course of this, this romance have been maybe a little unfair to Ezra and Nehemiah. And so I wanna, I wanna back off that a little bit. They weren't all wrong, no far from, and they're certainly not bad guys. They're devout, serious-minded, they're not hypocrites. They're really doing the best as they understand it to be the people of the Lord. I'm just saying that Ezra and Nehemiah don't tell the whole story because there's also Ruth and her subversive romance that leads to King David. And not only to King David. These friends of Naomi and Bethlehem blessed Naomi's grandson by saying, may his name be famous. And he is famous. And maybe more famous than you might think. Because King David is not Obed's only descendant who was born in Bethlehem. Let's go to the New Testament. After, after four weeks in the Old Testament, let's go to the New. Where should we go? Let's just go to the very beginning. Let's go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David the son of Abraham. 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and so on. I'm not going to read them all. And Boaz, oh, we know Boaz now. And Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Oh, Ruth shows up. We know her. She was like a Moabite. And she, was, she, she and her husband died and she came back and then she's gleaning and then Boaz. And, we know that story now. There are very few women mentioned in the genealogy, but Ruth is mentioned. And Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed was the father of Jesse and Jesse was the father of King David and so on. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Ruth the Moabite is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Our subversive romance is part of the story that ends with Jesus. And all of the best stories end with Jesus. If you, if you want a great story, just bring in a lot of drama and then let Jesus be the hero. The townswomen of Bethlehem rejoiced that a child had been born to Ruth and to Naomi, a child that was called a redeemer and a restorer of life. They rejoiced because a child was born unto them. And surely that reminds us of what Isaiah prophesied. For unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with justice and righteousness from this time forth, even forevermore. From the subversive romance of Boaz and Ruth, a child has been born unto us. And he is your redeemer and your restorer of life. He is wonderful. Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His name is Jesus. He is your Redeemer. He is your Restorer of Life. He raises the dead, my friends. He raises the dead. He's wonderful Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's your Redeemer. He's your restorer to life. Put the government of your life upon his shoulder. Put the government of your life upon his shoulder. He will be your redeemer. He will be your restorer of life. His name is Jesus. Call upon him. Call upon him. Just, just do that right now. And maybe, just, maybe, maybe just stand up with me. Just stand up with me. And, and just say things like, Jesus Save me. Jesus, rescue me. Jesus, help me. You can be poetic about it if you like. Like Ruth was, spread your wing over your maidservant. Spread your wing over your servant and redeem me. I've been living a long time in Moab and it's been hard. I've had much loss. I've been through pain. I feel like I could 
be called bitter, but I'm not going to become bitter because Jesus, I call upon you. I call upon you. Spread your wing over us. Redeem us. Make us your own. Refresh us. Restore us. Give us back our life. Be our sustainer in youth and old age. Be the one that supports us. Jesus, we call upon you. Lift your hands. Just lift your hands to the Lord. Lord Jesus, hear our prayer. We cry out to you. You are the child that has been born unto us through the miracle of the incarnation. You are the son that is given to us upon whose shoulder is to be the government. Yes, we confess that you are wonderful. You are always fascinating to us. You, you, you evoke wonder in us and you are counselor, Lord. Guide us, lead us. Tell us how to go, how to move. We want to follow you. You are mighty God. True God from true God. You are the everlasting father. You are a progenitor of a new race of being. In Adam, we all die. But in you, Lord Christ, we all live. Hallelujah. Everlasting father. And you are the prince of peace. Speak peace over your people. Speak peace over your people. Speak peace over your people. Amen. And amen. And now we come to the table of Jesus. We come to the table of our redeemer. We come to the one who gives us his own life. How is he our restorer? How is he the one that redeems us? How is he the one that brings us back to life? He gives us his own life. Through his flesh and blood, through the bread and wine of Holy Communion. Let's prepare ourselves now first by confessing together our faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now join with me in confessing our sins and receiving the Lord's pardon. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often, you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Amen.